15. Former owners of the land, but except the Mohammedan invaders of the 10th century, the conquerors seem more or less to have fallen in with the faith and traditions of their new subjects. The greater part of the natives of India are worshippers of Buddha, though many have been converted to Christianity. The teaching of Buddha depended greatly on meditation and freedom from the distractions of the world, and Buddhists at a very early date began to withdraw into communities of hermits living by themselves, and, partly from convenience, partly from a love of mysterious places, availed themselves largely of the many natural caverns with which the rocks of India and Tibet abound. At first a small cave would be enlarged, and by the aid of masonry turned into a habitable cell for one or more of the hermits. Next a veranda would be added, where the good men might meditate, and at the same time enjoy light and fresh air. Later on a large cavern would be chosen, which, with some building, and the addition of pillars to support the roof, would be adapted to the form of a great central hall, with small surrounding cells for each of the brethren. To our ideas it sounds rather cold and gloomy. But those were not days of luxury, and in southern India, where coolness means comfort, these old cave dwellers might have been worse off. Some of these Buddhist temples are marvels of genius as well as of industry, being richly decorated with carvings of men, women, and animals, and with pillars, roofs and galleries cut from the solid rock. One of the most celebrated of these rock buildings is on a small island a few miles from Bombay, called by the natives, Girapur. Though in the 16th century the Portuguese gave it the name of Elephant, from a huge black stone elephant which they saw on landing, the great temple is reached by a paved causeway from a beach below, and is chiefly underground, though both center and wings have handsome outside frontages, the chief hall is 130 feet long or about as large as a fair-sized English church, and formerly had many columns, though most of these have fallen. The roof of the cave in the east wing projects 7 feet beyond the line of pillars, and is about 50 feet long. On square pedestals guarding the entrance sit stone animals, either leopards or tigers, and inside are statues, whilst over the head of an image of Buddha are flying cherubs. The view from outside, over the Bay of Bombay, is very beautiful, and the temple is still held sacred by the Hindus, who celebrate there the festival of Shivaratri. An important religious fair is also held before the first new moon after the middle of February in each year. Helena Heath, a hundred years ago. True Tales of the Year 1805. I.I.I. The Simplon Road. In the year 1805 Napoleon accomplished a work which for many years had occupied his thoughts. Namely, a good carriage road from Switzerland to Italy, over the Simplon Pass. Thus associating his name with that of the great Carthaginian general, Hannibal who had crossed that pass with his troops many hundred years before. This road of Napoleon's still perhaps the best graded mountain road in Europe was a marvel of engineering, and was considered perfect in all respects. Every stone which marked the miles or rather kilometers along the route was stamped with the imperial eagle, and each bridge over the rushing torrents bore the words Napoleon fake it Napoleon made this, so that succeeding generations should honor his name. How little could Napoleon have imagined that? Just 100 years later, human moles, boring an underground passage through the mountain, would render his grand road all but useless, and that the opening of the Simplon Tunnel would cause his road to be neglected and forsaken. Some conversation on this topic was passing between the travelers on a diligence or coach not long ago, as the five horses gaily trotted along the Simplon Road from Breed to the Italian side. An English schoolboy, who had been attentively listening, 
broke in this grand road to be left to decay, the road Napoleon made, why is it to be given up? I never saw a better road in all my life. There could certainly be no better road, answered an elderly gentleman who sat next to the lad. But now that the Simplon Tunnel is almost an accomplished fact, this road will be no longer needed. People will not sit for eight or ten hours on a diligence when they can do the journey in less than an hour by rail. I would choose the diligence all the same. Tunnel or no tunnel, said the lad heartily. Just see how jolly it is to be trotting uphill, with a precipice on one side of you, a great slab of rock on the other, high snow mountains in front, and hundreds of butterflies dancing about in the Sunday isn't that better than being dragged through a dark tunnel, boxed up in a stuffy train. I agree with you there, at any rate in summer, said his neighbor, smiling, but for all that the tunnel is a grand thing for this country, and it will benefit English folk too for it will considerably shorten the distance between the Straits of Dover and the Adriatic, and so our Indian mails will go through the Simplon Tunnel to Brindisi. The tunnel is 12 miles long the longest railway tunnel in the world. I know the tunnel is very wonderful, went on the lad, and I dare say it is necessary. But why? Because there happens to be a tunnel inside the mountain. Should this beautiful road be allowed to go to rack and ruin? That beats me and the boy looked round as if to request an explanation from someone, a Swiss gentleman speaking. However, most excellent English enlightened the lad. You only see the road in summer, when every yard of it has been carefully inspected, and if necessary renewed. The winter storms and avalanches do great damage here every year, bridges are swept away, and the roads blocked with immense rocks brought down by the avalanches so that the cost of keeping this road in repair comes every year to over a million of francs. When the tunnel is open, the government will be able to save this money, as the road will be no longer needed. Poor old road, said the lad. Then will no one ever come up it in future? Oh, yes, answered the gentleman. It will always be used by the peasants they cannot afford to pay railway fares, and I hope for their sakes the monks at the hospice yonder will still continue their good offices and not forsake the home and the refuges, as there is some talk of their doing, now that the number of travelers on the road will be so greatly diminished. Of course, said the boy eagerly, I have heard of the St. Bernard monks, and their hospital and their dogs, and how they did travelers out of the snow, and so on, but what are refuges, please? I never heard of them. They are also shelters for travelers, a sort of offshoot from the parent house at the top of the pass. It is 15 miles from the valley to the hospice, and in winter time the road is often blocked by snow, and if it were not for these refuge houses, where food and warmth is freely given to all comers, many a poor traveler would perish in the snow. Napoleon's fame will have to live without the help of the great road which he built to keep it alive, though many obstacles have been met with, including a breakdown caused by an underground spring, when there were only a few yards between the borings from each end. The tunnel is at last practically finished, and it is hoped that in 1905, a hundred years after Napoleon made his road, it will be open for railway traffic. S.C. The bat and the ball. I'm quite knocked up, exclaimed the ball, while mounting to the skies. I know I shall have such a fall after this dreadful rise. I speak no ill of anyone, however they provoke. But many things the bat has done are something past a joke. Just watch that ball. How high he goes, the bat exclaimed with glee, but yet he never says he owes his rise in life to me. Mumber mumber that's not his way at all, and though I do my best, 
his graceless growls at every fall or something past a jest. John Lee, without a hen to buy stamps, a native from the shores of Lake Nyasa, in Central Africa, lately enlisted in the King's 2nd African Regiment, and went off to the war in Somaliland. He had had some education in the mission school in his own village, and by and by sent home a very good letter describing his work, and how he learned signaling, and so on, and then he ended up with this pathetic little reproach to his brothers in Nyasaland for leaving him without a letter, and what? All the people who knew us, have they finished to die that island are they all dead, or are they alive and laugh? Brethren of Mbamba, how are you without a hen to buy stamps? A fowl in Central Africa, it may be explained, costs about a penny, and is the usual means of barter, so that stamps are bought with hens, but let no one think an African fowl is as plump as its English sister, on the contrary, it is such a poor, skinny thing, that three of them form the usual breakfast for a European, who after all often gets up hungry, ex May Day, the village children were making great preparations for May Day, and none were more excited than Alice and May Riston, for it would be little May's birthday, and she had been looking forward to it for a long time, early in the morning, before some people were out of their beds, the children would start maying, carrying garlands and bunches of flowers tied on poles, and calling at each house to sing the May greeting, some would give them pennies, and others only smiles, but the fun and the frolic were what the children loved, and they would be certain to have plenty if the sun shone and the skies were blue overhead. On the last day of April, Alice and May hurried home from school, for they meant to start off directly after tea to pick the flowers they would want. I do wish mother would give me a ribbon for my garland, little May said, as she ran along, trying to keep pace with her elder sister. I don't think she will, Alice replied. Mother says pennies are none too plentiful, and she cannot waste them on finery for us, so I am sure she will not buy ribbon just to decorate our flowers. Annie Mock had hers tied with a lovely bow of white satin last year, May said, with a sigh, I don't want to go Maying if I have no ribbon for my flowers. May was just a little bit spoiled because she was much younger than Alice, and her elder sister was so devoted to her that she always thought of her first, and gave way to her in everything. We will find the very prettiest flowers we can, dear, and then nobody will miss the ribbon. Do coax mother to buy me a bit, May begged, but Alice knew that this would be quite useless. How she wished, though, that she could satisfy her little sister. If only she tried hard enough, perhaps she would be able to think of some plan. However, when they reached home she was afraid that May might be disappointed, not only of her ribbon, but of her flowers and garland as well for she found Mrs. Stevens, the squire's wife, had called and asked Mrs. Riston to send Alice to the lodge to help with some weeding. Oh, mother, need I go? I must get the flowers for the maying, Alice said. Nonsense, my dear, I cannot disoblige Mrs. Stevens when she is always so kind to us. So Alice had to go to the park lodge, leaving May in tears, because she knew she could not get nearly as many flowers without her sister to help her. Never mind, dear, pick some primroses and ferns, and I will get up early tomorrow to gather May Blossom and make the garland, Alice promised, as she kissed her goodbye. It was growing dark when the weeding was finished, but Mrs. Stevens was very much pleased with the neat look of the borders. You have been a good, industrious girl, she said to Alice. Now you must come in and have some cake and milk, and I have a few little scraps of finery your mother may like for her patchwork. 
she brought a bundle of pieces of bright colored silk, and among them Alice saw, with delight, a length of lovely green ribbon. Her eyes shone with excitement as she thanked Mrs. Stevens. Do you think, ma'am, we might use that beautiful ribbon for our garland? It would still do for mother's patchwork if we ironed it afterwards. Then Mrs. Stevens had to hear all the story of May's wish and her sister's fears for her disappointment. She gave Alice leave to go through their orchard on her way home, and to pick as many of the wild jonquils white Sundays. The children called them as she liked. So Alice was a happy girl. And, although she saw by the tears on little May's cheeks that the child had cried herself to sleep, she knew how glad her awaking would be. Alice was awake at daylight to weave the garland and arrange the bunch of flowers on the pole. When all her preparations were finished, she roused May and told her that it was May Day and she had a delightful surprise for her. She brushed the little girl's golden hair till it shone, and put on her best white frock. And then, looking from the window, saw some other children coming to meet them. Run off, dear, she said, I will follow with your garland. She just had time to slip on a clean pinafore, and then hurried after her down the hill. Oh, how lovely, cried May, when she saw the green ribbon, and she was so excited she could hardly stand still while she held the garland and Alice tied it on. The other children were full of admiration, and May's happy little face, with the hug she gave her kind sister, quite repaid Alice for her hard work the evening before, and for getting up with the sun to prepare for a joyful maying. M.H. not the same thing. At a college in Cambridge there was once a master who was extremely fond of figs. He watched his fig tree very closely and tenderly, for he held that in the existence of a fig there was but one fit and proper moment at which the ripe fruit should be eaten. To eat a fig either before or after that supreme moment was, said the master, a neglect of an opportunity and a sad mistake. One year, for some reason, the tree produced only one good fig and one day the master's examination of this solitary fruit led him to the conclusion that it would be at its best on the day following. Then he did an exceedingly foolish thing considering that there were undergraduates about. He wrapped his precious fig in a piece of silver paper and labeled it the master's fig. At what he judged the exactly right moment of the next day the master went to the tree, anticipating a brief but exquisite pleasure. Alas, the fruit had vanished and the empty branch bore a label with these words, a fig for the master, H.J.H. invitations, the daffodils are nodding, there is a swaying of the trees, the playroom window rattles to the fragrant summer breeze, there is sunshine in the garden, and the bees are all a hum, oh, hark, the invitation, you must come, 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 the butterfly is glancing on his wings of golden hue, ah, see where now he loiters o'er that bed of pansies blue, a moment since we hovered at this very window pane, to see if we were coming to the garden and the lane. Hats, hats, for those who want them, boots, boots, oh, lace them, do, fling open doors and windows, to let the sun shine through, when birds and bees and blossoms invite us out to play, oh, who could well refuse them upon so bright a day, John Lee, Japanese plums, plums, especially if pickled, our favorite ration of the Japanese soldiers. These plums are said to be such marvelous thirst quenchers that if you have once tasted them the mere recalling of their name is sufficient to allay the severest thirst. There is a saying in the Japanese army that when a regiment shows signs of being overcome from want of water, the officer in command has only to say, two miles from here, my men, there is a forest of plum trees, at once, 
says a Japanese writer. The men's mouths begin to water, and the danger is past. X the boy tramp, continued from page 139. I fell asleep at last, and, on opening my eyes the next morning, saw the sunlight shining into the squalid room. Evidently it had been empty on my arrival at the house, and Mrs. Loveridge had flung these things on the floor and placed a basin and what looked like a duster on a broken back chair, and considered the room furnished, not aware of the time, but believing it to be quite early, I got up and said my prayers and began my toilet, with the intention of going downstairs to explore the house, having lain down in my clothes, I now washed as well as I could without soap, opened my door, went out to the landing, and listened, all that I could hear was snoring, so, taking courage, I tried to walk downstairs without noise a task in which I only partially succeeded. Passing the first floor, I went on to the rooms which I had entered yesterday, and then to the front door. I saw that it was locked, and that the key, as Mrs. Loveridge had hinted, had been taken away. At the back of the passage was a flight of stairs, and, in the wild hope of finding some kind of back door, I went down. In this basement were two rooms that in front being an ordinary kind of kitchen the door of the back room being locked. I was in the act of stooping to look through the keyhole, when I felt a hand on my collar. Now, get away from that, cried Mrs. Loveridge, flinging me heavily against the wall. None of your prying down here, or it'll be the worse for you. I returned upstairs without speaking, and there I hung about the room, where the supper things still remained on the table, until I smelt an odor of frying bacon. Both the men came to breakfast, and nobody spoke during the meal. When it ended, Mr. Loveridge left the room, and I heard him downstairs, opening and shutting the door of the room where I had been caught trying to peep. I strained my ears for any fresh sound, fancying that someone must be blowing a pair of bellows, such as may be seen in any blacksmith's shop, until my attention was suddenly diverted. I never expect gratitude, said Mr. Parsons, so I am not disappointed if I don't get it. There are private goings-on in every house. Come to that, and visitors have got to behave themselves. Of course, I answered, remembering the caution I had administered to myself last night. People tell me I am what you may call a good-natured man. He continued, I noticed how thin his lips had become, and what an unpleasant expression had come into his eyes. But if you rouse me, he exclaimed, I'm a targer I am, so you had better be careful. I was rapidly growing convinced that there was a mystery connected with the house, and that the clue was to be found downstairs in what ought to have been the back kitchen, but I had no time to think of this at present, because Mr. Parsons said he intended to take me out, he accompanied me into the passage, where he carefully brushed his tall hat with his sleeve, and opened the street door, whilst I determined to lose no opportunity of making my escape before we returned. The next minute we were walking away from the house, and, to my surprise, Mr. Parsons put his hand through my arm, holding it with what seemed to be a grip of iron. Where are we going? I asked. As we left the street, I want to make a deal with a friend of mine, was the answer. Appearances are very important in this world. My lad, I like to see a boy nicely dressed. I'm always very particular myself what I wear. My clothes are all right. I muttered. You think so, do you? Now, I'm very fond of a short black jacket and a tall hat. A tall hat is most important. You mean Eatons? I suggested. You will see what I mean before you're much older. He answered, still keeping his grip of my arm. 
In a wider street in the neighborhood of Edgware Road we stopped before a good-sized second-hand clothes shop, which was kept by a man, who appeared to be a friend of Parsons, telling me to enter first. He stood blocking the doorway while he carried on a whispered conversation with the shopkeeper. Take off your jacket, he said, a few minutes later, as the shopman began to show some folded suits of clothes. Although I did not in the least like the notion of exchanging my own clothes, shabby as they were, for a suit which had already been worn by somebody else, it was a part of my plan to offer no unnecessary objection. Besides, it must be confessed that, in his quiet way, Mr. Parsons had succeeded in filling me with something very like terror, in a manner, he seemed like a volcano, looking perfectly harmless, and even pleasant, but yet capable of a terribly dangerous eruption. The shopman brought out an armful of clothes, and the second jacket I tried was only a trifle too small. In less than a quarter of an hour I had taken off my own suit and put on in its place an ordinary suit of Eaton's, such as we all wore on Sundays at Castlemore. Although obviously far from new, it was not in very bad condition, but the hat, which had a soiled lining, required to be filled in with paper to prevent it from coming down over my eyes. Mr. Parsons sold my old suit it could scarcely have fetched a very high price, and paid the difference to the shopman, who, I observed, examined the money, coin by coin, with close attention. Now, said Parsons, as we walked in the direction of Edgware Road, you look a little more genteel. We entered a cheap hosier's shop next, and there he bought me a white shirt, two white eaten collars, and a dark tie, all of which I carried home in a brown paper parcel. So far the morning had been passed harmlessly, if unpleasantly, for I continued to resent the second-hand suit, and especially the hat, and now we walked direct back to the house, after a meal, of which the less said the better, Mr. Parsons took me into his own bedroom, telling me to change my shirt and look sharp about it, when I had put on the white shirt, a wide collar, and the new necktie, I returned to the front room, but was sent into the passage to fetch the tall hat. In the front room I found Mr. and Mrs. Loveridge, as well as a rough-looking man whom I had not seen before. Mr. Parsons placed his hand on my shoulders, and turned me round and round as if he were proud to show the change he had effected in my appearance. Won't he do beautiful? He cried, excitedly. Did ever you set eyes on a nicer, genteeler-looking lad? Don't he take the cake? They all began to laugh, evidently with approval while I bent my lips and tried to look as if I also liked it, although I think it was one of the worst minutes of my life. Well, said Loveridge, we shall see what we get for our money. Mrs. Loveridge muttered something which I could not understand, and Mr. Parsons shook his head with a significant frown. Trust me for that, he answered. Come along, Jackie. Handsome is that handsome does, you know. A few minutes later we were again out in the street and while any casual passerby would have imagined that I was accompanied by an affectionate old gentleman who held my arm, I knew very well what was his real motive. It was a hot afternoon, and presently we took an omnibus to Oxford Circus, where we at once turned down a side street. I dare say you are thirsty, my lad, he exclaimed, suddenly. Now, two or three doors from here there's a nice shop where they sell delicious ginger beer a penny the bottle. Go and get yourself a bottle. Jackie, I I don't want any, I answered, as he took a coin from his pocket, Jackie, he said, looking full into my face, you will find it always best to do as you're told, go and get yourself a bottle of ginger beer, 
my lad. Chapter XVII. Taking the two shilling piece, I walked on and entered the small shop, where a clean looking woman stood behind the counter, opening a bottle of ginger beer. She poured the contents into a glass, counting out the change for the floor in while I drank. In the meantime Mr. Parsons was waiting directly outside the door, and the moment I reached his side he again gripped my arm. Change, he muttered, whereupon I put the one and elevenpence into his shaky hand. When we had walked a little farther, he stopped at another shop at tobacconists this time. Just go in there and buy me a box of wax lights, he said, giving me half a crown. Accordingly I entered the shop, where a young man was smoking a cigarette just within the door. A box of wax lights, I cried, placing the money on the counter, having given what I asked for. The man began to examine the coin. He rang it on the counter. He tried it with his teeth. And then he looked curiously into my face. Haven't you got any smaller change? He asked. No. I answered. And, with another curious glance, he examined the half crown again. And finally gave me the change. Continued on page 158. Insect ways and means. I.V. How insects see. Of the five senses. Sight is to mankind undoubtedly the most precious. The changes of the seasons. The beauty of scenery. Sunset and sunrise. The wonders of nature. And the triumphs of art are only to be appreciated through the eyes. Which have aptly been described as the windows of the soul. Yet there are many who pass through life without even realizing what we may call the gilding of the world the delights of color. Quite a large number of people have no color sense. And are unable to tell red. For instance. From green, the writer knows an eminent botanist who is unable to tell the colors of the flowers he so loves to study. How is it with the little people of the insect world in this matter? Their eyes are constructed on an entirely different plan from ours. What sort of a world is it that they look on, taken as a whole? It would seem that the insect inhabitants of our world see but very little of it. They perceive it rather through the sense of smell. Only a very few insects, such as dragonflies, for example. See well, and even their length of sight probably does not exceed six feet or so. They are a near-sighted race. Moreover, they see moving objects more easily than stationary ones. That many recognize colors there can be no doubt. And many show preferences for certain colors. These show a great liking for blue, and ants for violet. White butterflies appear to prefer white flowers, and yellow butterflies yellow flowers. Orange and yellow are also attractive to bees whilst other colors seem to have no charms for them. There is no doubt that some insects, however, see much more of the world than others. For the eyes of the insects and their near relations, the spiders and scorpions, are of two different kinds, and both kinds differ greatly from ours in structure. Let us take the simple eye found in the spider or scorpion, for an example, and look at it. If you catch a spider, and carefully examine the front of his head, you will notice a number of bead-like bodies of different sizes, arranged sometimes in the form of a circle, sometimes on a prominent swelling or tubercle, or it may be in some other fashion, according to the kind of spider. These are the eyes. A section cut through one of these eyes and placed under the microscope would show that the surface of the eye was formed by a transparent body like a lens, and that behind this lay a complicated arrangement of rods passing gradually into the nerves of sight. Only ocelli as these eyes are called, are found in the spider and his kind, but in true insects, like the dragonfly, or the butterfly, we meet with eyes of another kind, in addition to ocelli, 
These are known as compound eyes. Where compound eyes are found, the ocelli never exceed three in number, and are arranged in the form of a triangle, and placed in the middle of the head figures two, three, and four. The compound eyes vary greatly in their size. In some insects they are placed one in each side of the head figure one, in others, as in the drone bee, they meet one another at the top of the head figure three, spot marked O and extend downwards to the mouth, in others, yet again, they may attain a huge size, and occupy even the whole front of the head, crowding over the ocelli to form a little group at the top, as in the head of a species of fly known as the bibio figure four, the compound eye is so delicate and wonderful that great knowledge of anatomy or the science of optics is necessary before it can be really appreciated. Briefly, it is made up of a cluster of simple eyes, in each of which there are several parts. Beginning at the surface we have what is known as the facet, or cornea, which roughly corresponds to the surface of our own eyes. Next we meet with a clear, glassy rod, and this passes downwards into the nerve of sight. Around these rods is a sheath of black coloring matter so that each eye is cut off from its neighbor, thus the whole eye may be likened roughly to a bundle of telescopes, of what use, it may be asked, are the three little eyes in the middle of the head of insects which have these wonderfully complex eyes, well, the large compound eyes are used to watch the movements of other animals, thus they are enabled to escape their enemies, many of you doubtless have tried to catch butterflies, and if so you will know how suddenly and quickly they avoid the master stroke that is to land them in the net, but the use of the three little eyes seems to be to enable their possessor to see in the dark. By their means the B figures 2 and 3 can distinguish objects even in the darkest parts of the hive, so to the ant can find his way about the galleries of his underground home. Night flying moths all have these little eyes, whilst in butterflies, which fly in the daytime, they are wanting. WPPYCRAFT, ALSFZS, two ways of reading a sentence. People in high stations of life often receive from authors presents of their works, and are expected to say something flattering about them in return. They do not like to hurt the author's feelings if the book is worthless, and so Benjamin Disraeli, one prime minister, used to answer those who approached him in this way, I have received your book, and shall lose no time in reading it. This sentence, as you can see, is capable of being read in two ways, but the sender of the book was, of course, intended to understand the more flattering reading, it was a kind of deception, and was not very honest, but it was done out of kindness, a musical composer found another way of answering the many applicants for his opinion, I have received your music, he would write, and much like it, S. Clarendon, Rudel and Lisbeth.